Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Cameron, Andy McWilliam, Jared Samuel, Garish Hunter, Jozo Novak, Anders Johansson, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my writing and conversations, and participation in our live Team Human salons in the Kibitz Room. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. We've got a special treat for you today, a recording of a really engaging discussion I had with Rebecca Giblin and Cory Doctorow at the Ottawa Writers' Festival, uh, really just, I guess, two weeks ago, entitled Survival Apocalyptic Economics. I love the Ottawa Writers' Festival. It's really the only one I've ever gone to more than once. I've gone three times, actually, because of how human scaled the whole thing is, where the distinction between author and reader, it vanishes, and you just kind of sit around on couches eating vegan food and talking about ideas. Those mealtime conversations then just flow pretty naturally into the more official events, like the conversation you're about to hear I was at the festival celebrating the launch of Survival of the Richest, which I really do hope you've had time to get your hands on. It's by far my funniest and probably most insightful book, and I've even got a great audiobook version out now. I'm not pitching this for the sales, but because this book makes it a lot easier to understand what's happening around us right now. This is the, the sociology of the digital media environment, the, the way of thinking that's informing and determining our politics, our economics, our, our ethics. Anyway, 
I was there for Survival of the Richest, while Rebecca and Corey were there for the launch of their new wonderful book, Choke Point Capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labor markets and how we'll win them back. So here are my new best friend, Rebecca Giblin, my longtime ally, Corey Doctorow, and me at the Ottawa Writers Festival, October 24th, 2022. I'm Corey Doctorow. Uh, this is Rebecca Giblin, Douglas Rushkoff. It calls me to do some framing because on the face of it, we've written three very different books, or two very different books, the three of us. Um, uh, Rebecca and I wrote a book about uh, creative labor markets. Doug wrote a book about elite eschatology and billionaires seeking bolt holes to avoid the end of the world. Um, but, on its, uh, but when you dig below that superficial difference, there actually is a uniting feature, which is that something changed 40 years ago. 40 years ago in the time of Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Brian Mulroney, we had a, a, a shift in the way that we perceive our, our politics and our future. And um, we uh, embraced the idea that if only we would adopt policies that were good for large firms and for the shareholders who waxed rich from them, that uh, things would go well for the rest of us. And it hasn't worked out so well. Um, Doug's book uh, addresses some themes about um, what it means for the people who are at the top of that ladder to recognize that things aren't going so well for them and, and where they think they're going to head next. And our book talks about what the people who are on the other end of that transaction uh, are feeling and, and what we can do about it. And so from those two ends of that, of that uh, uh, divide, we think that we've got quite a, a dialogue to be had. And also we're, we're all pals and... Uh, generally get along like a house on fire. So I thought I'd start by asking Doug to introduce his idea of the mindset and, and how things go in the uh, world of elite eschatology. Uh, well, I mean, most simply, uh, I mean, the book was inspired by an event where I thought I was doing a talk for a group of wealthy bankers, and it turned out to be a consult to five billionaires about their bunker strategy where they wanted to know things like, how do I maintain control of my Navy SEALs once my money is worthless? Um, and what it, what it made me realize, though, was that they'd been operating under a, what I came to call the mindset, which is really uh, asking themselves the question, how much money do I need to earn in order to insulate myself from the damage I'm creating by earning money in this way? And it was... a, a of, of particular import to, to tech billionaires because regular billionaires from the industrial age used to be able to outrun the damage they were creating. They could kind of build a car that could go fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. But uh, digital business solutions were so global, they scaled so quickly that most of these guys were looking for ways to, to go meta on reality. So, in the finance world, going meta would mean instead of having a stock, you have a derivative or a derivative of a derivative. And as we know, the derivatives exchange became so much bigger than the stock exchange that the New York Stock Exchange was actually purchased by its derivatives exchange in 2013, right? So stocks, which are already an abstraction of the marketplace, were consumed by their own abstraction. And we see this again and again with Mark Zuckerberg. When Facebook stops working, he goes meta, right? Which is just a basket of as yet uninvented technologies that he thinks will be one order of magnitude above Web 2 as Web 3 
or Peter Thiel, who talks about going from zero to one. Again, is operating one order of magnitude above everybody else. And that's the mindset, which is this belief that they can live kind of as gods. You know, they take Stuart Brand literally, who said, uh, we are as gods and may as well get good at it, that they can lord over us that way. And execute the ultimate exit strategy when the time comes, which is, you know, Jeff Bezos's, uh, uh, or Bezos's sort of ultimate example of white flight on Blue Origin, which was, you know, praised by, by the media people who were there. And it was really just worshiping the mindset, which is that now one man is rich enough to do what we could do collectively 60 years ago. And that's really what I'm looking at, the idea that they, that they want to get to a Gini number of one, right? Where one person has all the poker chips on the table and uh, as a result must, must, must leave. And it, it dovetails with, you know, and we can talk of dovetails with the, sort of the history of empirical science, guys like Francis Bacon who wanted to take nature by the forelock and hold her down and submit her to our will. Folks like Hobbes who looked at, you know, indigenous people as just another part of the environment that you could, like you should wreck the environment either, but that you could just kind of bulldoze over. And uh, uh, the technology seems, or digital technology, uh, unlike the way we looked at it 40 years ago as a way of connecting people in new and crazy creative ways, that digital technology became another way to distance yourself from the masses that you're going to manipulate and extract value from, um, from, from safe, uh, safe remove, either of your, your you know, organic house in, in the Hamptons or uh, uh, Northern California, where you send your kid to a Rudolf Steiner school while everyone else uses the poisonous apps on your, on your iPad. So that's really the mindset that, we're look, that I'm looking at. And obviously the way that that mindset is maintained is through uh, exactly what you're talking about. The, 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 the technological enforcement of market mechanisms that allow for this kind of uber-amplified steroidal capitalism to, to occur. And, and um, you know, fun fact about Peter Thiel, he, uh, he says that democracy is incompatible with freedom and also that women shouldn't be allowed to vote. And on that note, Rebecca, <laughs> Hi. Uh, I thought maybe you could explain um, what we talk about uh, when we call uh, the current economic system choke point capitalism. So one of the things that Corey was talking about with what happened 40 years ago is this change in the way that um, particularly the United States has treated monopolies from this idea that presumptively that's bad to presumptively maybe that's really kind of a good thing, very efficient. Um, and we, what we see is, is the quiet part increasingly being said out loud. So people like Warren Buffett salivating over businesses that have what he calls wide sustainable moats and what he means by that is barriers to competition so that those extra profits that they're making um, can't be competed away. Peter Thiel as well, we've mentioned him a few times already, he says competition is for losers and that's the orthodoxy that's now being taught in business schools that you want to create businesses that are choke point businesses where you've got buyers at one end, customers at the other and these companies squatting predatorily at the neck where they get to extract more than their fair share of value. So whether, you know, and the mindset epitomizes this, you know, this idea of going meta is that the people who actually make the things and provide the services that make life worth living, 
don't get to share fairly in the value from that work anymore, right? right? But we've got these ruling class, these chokers who, who are doing that. And it's this, this idea that, you know, what Doug talks about in his book, this idea of dominion, right? Mm -hmm. Not living, not living, not, not recognizing the interconnectedness of all things, including our relationship with the planet and other species, but control over it, dominion over it, crushing all of it until there is just one person left standing. And who wants to live in that world, right? I absolutely don't, absolutely do not. But this connection and community that is inherent to, I think, to arts worlds and artistic creation is just being stampeded over by, by these other people who are creating these choke points. Yeah, you know, I, 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 when I think about the connection between choke point capitalism and the, the mindset, I think the thing that I see in common is that both of them arose out of this idea that if we did things that were good for very large firms, that they would be good for the rest of us too. Mm -hmm. So it's going to trickle down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Rebecca and I, you know, we we've spent a couple of decades each in the copyright war trenches, and we've seen as the scope of copyright, the duration of copyright the penalties available to people whose copyrights are infringed and the evidentiary ease with which one can as assert copyright infringement have all increased, the, the scope and the profitability of the entertainment industry has also increased as these rights have been given to creators. But the share of income accruing to creators from their creative work has only fallen, both in real terms and proportionally. And you know, as we set out to explore why that was, we conceived of this metaphor of the choke point. We conceived of this idea that um, it doesn't matter what kind of rights you give to creators if the creators have to pass through a choke point on the way to their audiences, if there's only four publishers, three record labels, four movie studios, um, and, and so on, uh, then whatever rights you've been given by parliament or by Congress will just be expropriated at the choke point, and that giving your uh, uh, artists more copyright in order to give them more money in that world is like giving your bullied kid more lunch money. Mm. It doesn't matter how much lunch money the bullied kid has, the bullies are going to take it. And even if the bullies run a national campaign to support the idea of feeding Canada's hungry school children by giving them more lunch money, it doesn't mean that your kid is going to get lunch. All it means is that the bullies are going to take it from them at the, in, the, in the interim. Yep. And in the same way, you know, there's this famous saying about Americans that uh, socialism never took hold in America because every American sees themselves as a temporarily embarrassed millionaire. And the idea of redistributive policies that are good for the polity but not good for billionaires never really took hold. And today you have the end state of that yeah. with the billionaires having all the money. And in particular with digital technology, the, the boosters of this this digital capitalism have invented these myths that seem like economic theories, but they're just mythologies of capitalism. So we had uh, Wired Magazine did a cover called The Long Boom. And The Long Boom argued that because we have digital technology, the markets will grow exponentially forever. Period. Right? And even Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said, oh, we're in a new paradigm. And when things sort of stop working, when, the, when we start to see the beginnings of these parallel dynamics, Chris Anderson, oh, there's a long tail. Don't worry. You're not making any money now. But in the future, the long tail will eventually catch up. And all of the old backlist stuff that no one wanted will keep you alive. Or free. Free is the new expensive, right? <laughs> free is the new way you're going to make money. So each time 
time, they're these um, uh, almost uh, 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 Christian-level kind of uh, uh, promises of uh, utopia. Once you get over, once you get through this suffering, it will all work out. But it never does. We go through the suffering and then there's nothing to show for it. Yeah, and somehow, in fact, it's all getting a bit worse, right? So every right. year that passes and the planet warms up a little bit more and the fires get worse and the floods get worse and we get further to the point of no return, again, from this idea of domination that's continuing. Um, I thought it might be useful, just because we started talking about this sort of esoteric idea that we just made up about choke points, to just introduce you a little bit more to what we mean by that. Um, and Amazon is the master of choke points. And so you won't be able to see it here, but I'm going to try and explain it to you. Is you it possible might... to get the camera to zoom in? I don't know. <laughs> I think they were no, just trying. The it's hard to stop. I'll, I'll hold it up tricky. anyway, but I'm going to... Gonna... No, no, no. It's just a white too. page. Oh. You, look like, you look like you're uh, you're opening the briefcase in Pulp you Fiction. You can kind of see it there. I do look about as cool as I've ever looked, though. I right, well, that's true. It's <laughs> a good, it, it is a good jumper. <laughs> okay, so Amazon... Now I feel like I'm doing children's story time. So let me explain Amazon's virtuous cycle. Some of you will have seen Amazon's flywheel because they love to boast about it. And this is one of those examples about the, uh, this mythology that monopoly is good, okay? Mm. So they start off by talking about how they've got this lower cost structure. Who can complain about that? Lower cost structure means lower prices. We all love lower prices. That improves the customer experience, which drives traffic, which brings in more sellers, and then increases the selection. And then, like, it just continues in this, what they call a virtuous cycle, okay? But what they're really trying to do here, like Amazon has always been really clear about this, that from the get-go, their aim was to lock in their customers, right, and then lock in their suppliers, and from there, everything else follows. So a famous Bezosism is, your margin is my opportunity. So one of the first things that Amazon did, as soon as it got a little bit of market power, it created something called the Gazelle Project. And it's exactly what it sounds like. They went after the weakest publishers, the smaller ones, to shake them down for more and more margin that they could then use to further those low prices to lock in more customers, which would then lock in the publishers, which would then allow them to eliminate competition so no one had any choice. And then ultimately they used that. So we've created our own diagram explaining what happens. Um, and, and that's where they are able then to use that market power to force workers and suppliers to accept unsustainably low prices. And so it's really important that we recognize that this is, that this is what's going on, that, that there's not any virtue in it, and that even if we are perhaps getting lower prices at one end, the, the, there's a, a sleight of hand happening here, that there's a hand in our pocket while we're looking the other way, right? Um, in that this is not just Amazon doing this, it's all of the increasingly large corporations that are getting more and more power, and that when that results in downward pressure on our wages and how much we get paid for our work, we do have less ability to pay for the goods and services that we actually need, and it has the exact same result as raising prices. Although, as Corey will tell you, they're actually also raising right. prices as well. <laughs> right. And you can, you can no longer believe that they genuinely believe this is good for everyone. Right? They, they, they can't. They're not that stupid to be able to do this and that at the same time. So then when you do hear it, like when, when Corey was on the, on the radio uh, uh, a few weeks ago and I heard him talking about um, Epson printers 
and how Epson makes this printer that locks itself after, what, 5,000 or 10,000 pages. It freezes up. The justification is that there's some sponge in there that has to be replaced. But, you know, it was replaced a two-cent sponge. No, but instead they lock the printer. You've got to throw it away. So there's some dude somewhere at Epson who knows more kids are going to have to go into rare earth metal mines to get more uh, materials to make a new printer. The printer you have is going to have to get thrown onto a toxic waste dump in Brazil where some other poor family is going to have to pick on this stuff to get the renewable stuff. I'm going to end the planet sooner for everybody else, but I'm going to make enough margin like another on, 15 bucks on the maybe. new printer to shield myself, right? To insulate myself from that damp that they have to be thinking of it in that way. In this, in this, almost this, uh, what we were talking about earlier this evening, um, um, this, this McCaskill-like um, equation, you know, there's this uh, uh, effective altruism or long-termism idea that you measure sort of your good that you're doing in terms of happy, total happiness units. And the happiness units that they care about are the 143 trillion artificial intelligences that will be spread out through the universe that their happiness matters more than the eight or so billion humans who are alive today. We're just the larval stage, right? The little maggots that have to suffer for the great blossom at some point in the future. And these are the justification. This is the insanity of the people that are doing. So this is how they justify it, that they think that they're, they're somehow doing something that's, yes, you know, an end justifies the means painful now for the great, you know, attractor at the end of time, the omega point of, of perfect um, singularity consciousness that we'll get to, well, that they'll get to later and leave us all behind. So from, the, from this uh, abstraction, uh, quite dismal of 10 to the 53 artificial persons <laughs> in the distant future, I want to bring back to the, to the present and, and also um, uh, uh, bring back from the idea that there are some bad people who've done some bad things to some things that we can do. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the historic nature of the struggle over copyright over the last couple of decades is that creators were asked to choose a team. You choose team tech or you choose team content. And these two great giants would wrestle for dominance over their uh, uh, respective industries. And whichever one won, if you rooted for the right one, your champion might dribble a few more crumbs for you once they, once they ascended to the throne. And we postulate that maybe we can hope for more than rooting for a giant. That it's no good to, to hope that the, that the dictator is benevolent. I mean, Canadians understand this. In this environment of late-stage Westernism, right? This, this environment of, you know, the Ted Rogers dominion, we understand that when there is monopoly at one point in the supply chain, the rest of the supply chain always becomes monopolized. That once you have a monopoly in, uh, um, uh, in, in distribution, you get monopoly in publishing. And once you have monopoly in publishing, you get monopoly in bookstores. Because if you don't, then the distributors will screw the publishers. And if you don't, then the publishers will screw the bookstores. And so all of these entities have to monopolize. And what you end up with is that either end of this uh, supply chain of highly concentrated industries, you have readers on one side and writers on the other, disorganized and chaotic, and easy pickings for these uh, consolidated firms. So how can we unwind this? How can we do more than hope for a champion among these giants who might 
deign to give us a few more crumbs. The second half of our book is devoted to this, right? To deep structural, shovel-ready technical proposals for how we can unwind this anti-competitive flywheel, for how we can slow it down and spin up a new one, one that is in favor of the power of people and of creative workers. Um, and when we pitched this book around, one of the editors we pitched it to said, you know, I really like this book, but I'm not going to buy it because all the solutions in the second half of the book are structural solutions. And there's nothing that an individual can do hmm. to resolve this. It's going to bum people out. We were like, oh, dude, you are so <laughs> close to getting it. Because, of course, there's no solutions for individuals to unwind structural problems. You're not going to recycle your way out of climate change. You're not going to shop your way out of monopoly. But instead, we can embrace the idea that there are structural ways that we can intervene that will take the bullies away from the gate. So I'll give you one quick example. If you are a creator who gets a royalty for your work because you make games or movies or books or music, chances are your contract has a, uh, an audit clause that allows you to go back and audit your, uh, your, your publisher, your studio, or, or, or your label to make sure that they're not ripping you off. Most of us will never get to do that, but some of us will. We, we think that we're being ripped off maybe, or, or, or maybe you know, our, our, our organization sponsors an annual random audit on behalf of one of its members. If you go and you audit your publisher, your label, your studio, you may find an error in your favor. We, we cite some research in our book from a firm that has been doing this for decades for record label uh, contracts. They've done tens of thousands of these. And they found lots of irregularities. And this is going to baffle and surprise you. It certainly shocked us. It turns out that of all of the anomalies that they found in the accounting of record labels over decades, over tens of thousands of audits, every single one, save one, redounded to the favor of the record label. We don't understand this. We assume it's some kind of horrible localized probability storm. I don't know. But in any event, when you find money that's owed to you, we, we had one source who had a six-figure uh, discrepancy in their royalties. Uh, when you find money that's owed to you, and you go to your label or your studio or your publisher and you say you owe me some money, they'll say, you're mistaken. You've just read the books wrong. But we're good-natured slobs. Tell you what, we'll give you a discount. Um, we'll pay you some of it. You don't have to sue us. Obviously, you can't afford to sue us. But as a condition of us giving you that money, we require that you sign this non-disclosure agreement so that nobody else can know where the money we stole from you was or how to ask for it. And also, we're not going to allow other auditors who've audited us before to audit us again. It's as though you know, the forensics team has shown up to investigate the murder in your house. You say, guys, welcome. Dig wherever you'd like in my garden, just not in that corner. I'm sentimental about it, right? So almost all of these contracts, because of monopoly, are consummated in four states, California and New York, Washington because of, of Amazon, and then you know Tennessee because of Nashville. And contract is a matter of state law, which means that if four short bills were passed in these four states, or even just a couple of them, that said, as a matter of public policy, we will not enforce non-disclosure where it relates to material omissions or discrepancies or errors in royalty statements that redound to the deficit of creative workers who are owed a royalty, that in that moment, at the stroke of that pen, we will put more money into the pockets of more artists all over the world, in Ontario, in Quebec, all over the world, because this is where these contracts are consummated. 
than all of the copyright term extensions of the last 40 years combined. This is a, a gap in the machine where if we stick a lever and wiggle it around, money will pour out into the pockets of creators. And we spend, you know, six, seven chapters enumerating policies like this, but they all require that you think of yourself as part of a polity, mm -hmm. not as an individual, that you become part of a group, that you become part of an, uh, an association, a part of a political party, because none of these are things that we're going to solve in. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Individually. Right, and... and you know, and in extending that even further, I mean, sort of beyond the uh, uh, creative economy, you know, when, when, I mean, the thing that inspired me to write my book was not the moment I had with the billionaires, but uh, the second month of the pandemic, when I realized that I too was a mini tech billionaire thinking about how am I going to protect myself from everything that's going on out there. Now, I'm feeling less guilty about my Amazon Prime account or my, you know, fresh direct delivery and the little doorbell with the video and let them drop the stuff off and wait an hour and then go out with my bleach and bring it in and close the door. You know, and, and so what does it mean when we start to internalize these values is we become sort of strident individualists looking at our own retirement plan, our own survival as somehow in opposition to everyone else's or in competition. And I, I do think that, that we can initiate or trigger structural change or at least reduce our dependence on these corrupt structures by turning to our communities, by starting to see, and it sounds all, you know, teamy or, you know, team humany or whatever my last book, but I, I don't mean it just as some, uh, and just, it's even terrible to say this, just as some spiritual thing, but, you know, God can imagine. But, <laughs> oh, what has spiritualism yeah. ever gone yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, but I guess I do mean it as some spiritual thing, but also as a community thing and a civic thing and a social thing. You know, to, again, to quote uh, Cory Doctorow, and Steve, you got me to, to make a hole in your wall to hang a painting, you're going to go in the state, you're going to go to Home Depot, buy a minimum viable product drill, use it three times until it breaks, but you'll get that hole and then throw it out. Knock on the neighbor's door. Who's got a drill that I can use? And then you use the drill. Then they can borrow your lawnmower. And then this one can borrow that one snowblower. And there's, turns out you only really need one snowblower on each block. Except and that's in Ottawa. Well, <laughs> no, one wouldn't one. I mean, how many hours can you blow snow? I mean, you, that's what the rest of the panel is going to be. Debating. All right. <laughs> no, but, but the argument, when I make that argument in a, in a regular uh, uh, talk, people say, well, what about the lawnmower company? 
They're going to sell 10 less lawnmowers if you're only having one on the block. Aren't you thinking about that? I am thinking about that. And I am thinking about, rather than having uh, human beings serve an economy, why don't we have an economy that serves human beings? We will necessarily deflate the power of these companies if we're using less of their stuff and depending more on each other. And we will be more resilient if bad things do happen. Right? If bad things happen, you don't want to be in a private bunker guarded by Navy SEALs. You want to be in a community that already knows how to work and share with each other so that you can, you can be more resilient to the shocks and hopefully, um, hopefully avoid them. But it's the same argument. It's just on a social level rather than just a, uh, 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 an arts working level. And so what both of these books are talking about is trickle down, right? And what I was thinking about when I was reading your book, Doug, is what is actually trickling down here? And is this idea of individualization, atomization, you're an island? Um, and this is, this is part of the great project of neoliberal capitalism, is that that's a feature, not a bug, right? We're yeah. supposed to feel that empty loneliness inside of us that comes from being disconnected from our environment and our communities because then we will fill that emptiness with more production and more consumption. Right? You, you're the one, yeah. And what, and what was, I think, the, the most fun part of writing the book with Corey um, is when we got to the second half on solutions, because the first half is in, entirely enraging, but then when we got to the solutions part, um, there were so many amazing stories about how arts workers, how we're working together in order to change this, right? By recognizing they were part of a collective. So for example, um, in Hollywood, four talent agencies took over all of talent and used it to shake down Hollywood's writers in particular, so that even though it was, it's the so-called golden age of television, the writer's share was going down and down and they could see the writing on the wall that if they didn't do something about it, it was game over. They created a new code of conduct that said that the, the agencies, like to eliminate these, these incredible conflicts of interest where the agencies um, were like lining their own nests at the expense of the people they were supposed to be representing, and who even created their own production studios and negotiated with themselves to hire their own talent, which mm. was pretty extraordinary, and said, okay, new code of conduct, unless you sign this code of conduct, you don't work with us. None of the big four wanted to agree, so in a single week, 7,000 Hollywood agents fired, oh, 7,000 Hollywood writers fired their agents, right? And this was a big deal, right? This was just completely stopping the way that the industry was working. And they ground it out for 22 months, right? And then finally, the last agency rolled over, everybody came on board, the conflicts of interest are gone, and we're seeing that the, the salaries are increasing. We saw it as well, um, again, around transparency, we're talking about the importance of audit, audit rights. Really important that they shine lights in dark corners so that we know what's actually going on, because who can fight an enemy if you don't know what they look mm. like? And so again, one of my favorite stories in this is around Audiblegate, which is a scandal that some of you might have heard about, where um, ACX, which is the platform, Audible's platform for independent writers and small publishers by which they get their, their audiobooks onto the platform, they were running this scam where they were encouraging, and you might have seen this if, you, if you're an Audible subscriber, you might have seen that you, you get emails sometimes saying, hey, do you want to return that book? You finished that book, but do you want to return that book? You'll get a new credit, no questions asked, right? Or when you finish the book, you'll get the same option. Do you, do you want to return this? Like it's a library book. 
what you might not realize is that when you do that, Audible is clawing back the full royalty that they gave to the author. And they, this policy was incredibly generous. It was offered to people, you could have had the book for a year, right? You could have listened to the whole thing. You could have loved it, no questions asked. And again, this was part of that, that broader mission of having customers locked in. This was only offered to the ongoing subscribers, right? Because Amazon doesn't care whether the authors get paid. They care about whether you keep paying your subscription every month and whether you're going to Audible instead of going to some rival platform like Libro.fm, which, by the way, um, allow, uh, gives a portion of all sales to your local bookstore. You can choose one. And so what happened is they were hiding this from their authors, right? They don't have to be transparent because nobody's making them and Amazon's notoriously secretive. And so what they were doing is that in the accounting, they were reporting net sales. And so if you're the author, you check your sales for the day and you're like, oh, I sold five books. What you weren't seeing is that you sold 15 books but 10 people returned them because Audible encouraged them to, even though there was nothing wrong with the audiobook. And so you were only getting your net sales. And so what happened is that one day there was a data glitch, right? And three weeks of returns data showed up in a single day. And so the veil was lifted. Authors realized, oh, far out, I've got minus 300 sales today. And they realized what was going on. And that allowed them to mobilize. And, you know, they've, they've, it, it's, it's, it's such a David and Goliath story because, you know, it's a, a, a yeah. handful of authors who really mobilized, led by this woman called Susan May, um, helped by this other incredible author called Colleen Cross, a former forensic accountant turned writer of um, forensic crime thrillers, who found herself in the plot of one of her yeah. own books because she was thinking, well, if they're doing this to us over the returns, what else might they be doing to us? And so she took her forensic lens to the, 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 the contracts and the royalty statements, and she was looking at going, actually, it doesn't add up at all. If they are paying us according to what the contract says they should be paying us, the numbers don't make any sense. And she thinks not only have they you know, been running this return scam, she thinks they might have actually been charging authors for the returns twice and then still paying them wrong on top of that. And she says it's maybe hundreds of million dollars that we're talking about. And so transparency, really critical, whether it's audit rights or, yeah. or these other things, but also it's just a necessary precondition to us realizing that we're all part of the same fight and that by working together, we can take this yeah. power back. The thing I love about these examples, they're examples of solidarity, which are very different from the way people are tempted to fight back right now. So these are giant companies, right? They're like these giant gods. And the, the, temptation is, um, the temptation is to build a golem, if you will. A scaled golem was the, the, the monster that the rabbis built to, to fight against uh, anti-Semitism in like, medieval Europe. But to, to build a scaled golem to fight Amazon or to fight Facebook. So we're going to build a blockchain for all of us. So we're going to make an alternative to Facebook that's going to fight them. And, that, and as if we're following their example that we believe the only way to fight the battle is to scale up with some giant abstract thing and fight them like two giant Gundam robots. But the examples that seem to work 
or when you reject the whole premise of scale and say, okay, here's a bunch of us, let's get together and let's do the thing. Like the, the writers who all, um, you know, struck because of the, the, you know, the packaging deals of Hollywood and the writers went, we're just not going to do this. That was a really incredible moment. Corey and I did an event in Beverly Hills um, with the, 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 the former president of the Writers Guild of America who'd overseen this strike, David Goodman, who we interviewed a bunch of times for the book. Um, and he's a terrific guy, he came along. And at that event, he said, what we came to realize as writers, and he said, my wife realized this long before I did, but we eventually got there, is that they only had the power that we gave them. We thought they had much more power over us than they actually did, mm. okay? But we were the ones doing the work. And we're all the ones doing the work, right? Why are we putting up with this? And how much longer are we gonna do it for? Because, you know, after all, if, if all the writers stop writing, you don't get movies. If all the agents stop agenting, the writers just get paid 10% more, right? So we, they, we only need them to the extent that we let them uh, uh, convince us that we need them. So in the, in the last chapter of the book, which I've, I've learned to call, stop calling the final chapter, yeah. uh, the, uh, in the last chapter of the book, the we, final solution you were the calling final for a while. Solution right. that we proposed. Oh my God, it was so bad the time I said that. It was awful. <laughs> anyway. That was at the Jewish holiday. I was going to well. say, it, yeah. was very, it was Rosh Hashanah. I just called my mom. And then I said, I was bad. Anyway, uh, so in this final chapter, we cite the work of a, of a friend and, uh, of ours, a scholar named James Boyle, who, uh, with his partner Jennifer Jenkins, runs the Center for the Public Domain at Duke University. And, and Jamie talks about the origins of the term ecology and what happened when the term ecology came into widespread parlance. He said that before the term ecology came along, it wasn't really clear who was on the same side as whom. You know, if you cared about owls and I cared about the ozone layer, how are we on the same side? You're fighting for the destiny of charismatic nocturnal avians and I care about the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere. That is not obviously the same issue. But the term ecology takes a thousand issues and makes one movement out of them. And it becomes a force to be reckoned with. And in, in joke on capitalism, you know, we talk about the fact that creators are one of the more vulnerable labor groups because creators produce even when they have no rational expectation of a return. No one dreams as a child of growing up to be an Uber driver and works for Uber even when there's no money to be had. But we all know that joke about the kid who runs away and joins the circus and his father finds him shoveling elephant shit and says, son, come home. And the kid says, what, and leave show business? Creators work even when there's no reasonable expectation of, of reward. But it's not just creators who work even when their employers abuse them, even when they could get more money elsewhere. All of the caring trades, the caring industries, are full of people, home healthcare workers, healthcare workers more broadly, teachers and nursery workers and so on, who, who are in these circumstances. And then beyond that, there's just innumerable workers who have been cornered into working because there is no alternative, because, they've been, because there's no other employer, because their employer has drawn down their wages and locked them in. You leased a car to drive for Uber and then Uber knocked down your wages month after month and so now you have to make your lease coupon but you have to uh, keep driving and every time you drive, you lower the value of your lease vehicle and so on, and you're locked in. And, and it is only when we recognize that we have solidarity across all these sectors that we can do something. And you know, 
it's not just that creators are well situated to make noise about this. After all, that is what it means to be a creator of some renown is that you have a megaphone and you can shout into it and maybe a few people will listen. Even if you don't have that megaphone, our, our, our brothers and sisters in the other sectors also are able to move together to structure change. So we talk in the book about the Uber drivers of California, where I live. And in California, Uber drivers are subjected to these um, binding arbitration waivers that say that if your employer screws you over and you want to sue them, instead of going before a judge, you have to go before an arbitrator who's a fake judge who's hired by Uber and relies on Uber for their paycheck who will decide whether or not Uber is in the wrong. And statistically and through scholarly research, we know that uh, corporate arbitrators tend to side with their employers, but even when they don't, uh, the uh, victory that you eke out is not precedent setting and the next person who comes along can't, can't uh, um, rely on it to, to score a victory for themselves. So Uber drivers in California were having their wages stolen by Uber and they, they wanted to sue, but they couldn't. And so instead they brought the world's first mass arbitration. They figured out how to automate arbitration claims and they brought thousands and thousands of them. And, and, and cumulated these arbitration claims would have cost Uber far more than it would have cost to pay back the wages they'd stolen. And so Uber went to court, and this was amazing, went to court and they said, your honor, what kind of idiot would find this ridiculous arbitration clause that we put in our contracts binding? This is an obviously unfair contract. How could you possibly enforce it just because we had claimed for all these years that it was enforceable? And Uber ended up paying their drivers $150 million. So it's, this is not just a right. case of bougie writers making cause, common cause right. with blue collar workers to help them along. All workers in every sector have worker power and together we have more worker power still. You know, writers may have big mouths and megaphones, but we don't have the numbers for anyone to care. If we did, there would have been some reversal a long time ago. Right. But together with all these other sectors, we can make a difference. The trick is, though, the technologies are being developed specifically to prevent us from being able to see one another as the brothers and sisters you're talking about. You know, the, the, I remember they taught us about, I, I write about the dumbwaiter effect, I call it in the book. They, they always taught us about the dumbwaiter in, in middle school, that Thomas Jefferson made this great invention, this hand-cranked elevator so his enslaved workers wouldn't have to trudge up the stairs with the food. Of course, the workers had to walk like half a mile in tunnels and up four flights of stairs until the last flight when they put it in the little dumbwaiter and it comes up and it, and it appears you know, automatically, like it's from a, a Star Trek replicator for, for the guests. The purpose of the dumbwaiter was not to spare labor work. It was to hide the labor from Thomas Jefferson and his guests so they wouldn't have to look at the labor. You look at Amazon, uh, uh, what's that, made-for-you t-shirts that are supposedly made by a, a computer. You take some iPhone pictures of yourself and you upload them and then a shirt is automatically made by machines for you, right? Where did the cotton come from, right? Where did the parts for the machine come from? Who's bringing the t-shirt to you? you know, it, that's all the labor that's just getting further hidden. So the way technology is being used now is not really to replace labor, but to hide labor, to, to, to further obscure labor so that the kinds of solidarity we're talking about can't happen. Right? You use the camera to see when the package, they send you the email, the package is there. You don't have to see whoever the 
poor soul is that brought it to you because that might actually activate uh, your compassion. You know, the, the, the machines let us live like the billionaires who, and I quote a, a study in the book, billionaires experience less empathy for other people than we do. You put a billionaire in an MRI machine and show them a picture of a, of a starving baby, the parts of the brain that light up for a normal person in the frontal lobe don't light up. That the neurologists say it's as if they've had head trauma. You know, and you could argue that maybe they started out that way. But no, I would say it's from repeatedly having to ignore the impact of what they're doing to mm. force themselves not to see what's happening uh, to the other people. But they've created, they've engendered a reality, even the Zoom reality where you can't actually establish rapport. You can't see the pupils getting bigger or smaller. You can't see if someone's breathing is syncing up with yours. That creates a cognitive dissonance. It creates a sense of distrust. That person says they agreed with me, but my body isn't getting the five hundred thousand years of painstakingly evolved social cues to tell me that that person really is agreeing with me. And so, so it makes it harder and harder to do the kinds of solidarity, to, to engender the kinds of trust that we need with each other to, to, to for lack of a better word, fight back um, against this, this extraction and control. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about that, that, that biological aspect, with the, whether the, we're talking about the mindset or we're talking about these choke point capitalists. It's these people who, it's the old saying, they, they know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Because, like, who wants to live in the world where you've destroyed absolutely everything? Sure, you're the last one standing with your Navy SEALs and you're bunkered down waiting to see if you're going to need to activate the electric switch on their collar to give them a shock so they don't come for you next, right? Like, this is... <laughs> but it's better than just going on not knowing if she's going to talk to me or not, you know? That's just too unbearable. But th this makes me think, like, what then? So if that's not the way that we want to live, and mm. it definitely is not the way I want to live, what are the conditions for a good life, right? Because this is, I think, I think that humans are not very good at necessarily, hashtag not all humans, but I'm not <laughs> sure that we're, we're really great at noticing that. So I was railing about this at lunch. I got a little thing pop up on my email client on my phone today that said, are you enjoying Outlook? <laughs> Absolutely not. How very dare you even ask me? This is the bane of my existence. The email situation is out of control. Right? But this shows me more and more that humans absolutely don't know what we need. We just keep making everything worse. But we do. We, we do. And it's, it's, so, it's so fun. I mean... Like, email is terrible, so then they invented Slack. It's just right. more and email. I know, and That's it's Canadian email, though. <laughs> no, but we've learned to be afraid of the wrong things. You know, it's like, uh, I remember when I was living in Brooklyn, there was a, a, a woman who was having a, a, she had a baby, and she was having trouble, you know, breastfeeding it. There was this old lady down the hall who had, like, nine children. She offered, I can come over, I'll teach you how to breastfeed. It's easy. But I don't want you to... She, and I was like, why don't you let her do it? She, no, I'm going to hire a lactation consultant, right? mm. the official person to come do it. Well, why don't you want her to do it? at least let her try? Well, because if she does, then she's going to want to like come over. She's going to want, right? So it's like, because so she does to getting it. Right. She, she, she didn't want to have that sense of obligation to the old woman in the hall. And it's like, no, that moment of obligation, that is what makes 
community. The reason why you bring brownies to someone when they move into your neighborhood is not so they have the brownies. It's so that they owe you something. So they have an excuse to come over. That's the way you bind it in. No, I mean, owe you something in the good way, not because you want it, but so they have a reason. So you embed someone in a community by indebting them, that in letting them. I mean, gosh, when I ask groups of people to start doing favors for each other, a lot of people offer to do favors. A very few people are willing to accept the favor. Mm, yeah. That's the Frady part, right? But you've got to learn to be a generous recipient as well yeah. as a generous giver or the whole system breaks down. But this is um, Dave Graeber's thing from, from debt, the first 5,000 years. Um, he, from that anthropo anthro anthropologist lens, um, I'm Australian, that's a, a big word. Um, he talks about how rude it is in many cultures to exactly discharge a debt. Because if you think about it, it suggests this transaction is over, right? This is fully discharged, we don't need to have anything to do with each other. So you overpay a bit or you underpay a bit when you reciprocate to show that this, like, these bonds are enduring, yeah. which is beautiful. We should definitely not discharge all of our debts fully. So we're coming up to time. Should we take one or two questions before we adjourn for the evening? Wow. You are adventurous. I am adventurous. I will counsel the audience before we take questions that a question is a short sentence that ends in an ascending voice. Uh, <laughs> it is not a statement. It doesn't have two parts. A long rambling statement followed by what do you think of this is technically a question, but it's not a good one. We will heckle you if you ask a bad one. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so so let's, do, let's do two quick questions, yeah. and then we can move swiftly on yeah. to the defense. This guy's of the confident. Books. Yeah. All right. He's like, heck yes, I'll take that. And no, don't buy NFTs. No. Yeah, oh, nothing about no, crypto. No crypto. No crypto questions. Yeah, 98% of all conversations related to blockchain are non consensual. Let's avoid that tonight. <laughs> He's put his hand back down. <laughs> just, waiting for, just waiting for the mic. So two questions, one quick, one a bit longer. First question is... Uh, <laughs> no, you broke bear, bear with me. Are you just, no. you're trolling us. Okay, go, 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 okay, go. It's ours. Okay, go. How, did, how did Corey and Rebecca find each other as creative partners? That's one question. The question for all three of you is, what do you see the role of unions and organized labor in fighting back? That's an excellent question. These, these are both good questions. I love our meet cute on this book, actually. Sure. So we, we'd, we'd known each other for a bit. Corey came out to Australia on a book tour. We were doing an event together. And we were taking the, a taxi back to the city. Um, and after these cumulative decades that we've had working in this space, we were just really at the despair stage where it was just unfathomably dreary and triggering to keep being in this false dichotomy that we, we kept being forced into about creators versus users, right? And we were saying it doesn't matter whether it's big tech or big content, the problem is the sociopaths that shake, that don't understand the value of anything that are shaking everybody down and whether it's one giant or the other, all you can hope for is crumbs. Fast forward a couple of years, that was February 2018, fast forward a couple of years, the world ended, I'm locked in my apartment in Melbourne and I had a I saw it as a rare moment of freedom. Like all of my work was cancelled for the year and I started thinking, well, what do I really, really want to do? And I was like, I, I need to tell this story. So I started work on it um, and it was exhilarating and incredibly frustrating because it's actually quite hard to just argue with yourself um, that long. And I thought this would be so much better if Cory Doctorow wrote this book with me. And you might not realize this, but you can just email him. Don't do this. You can email him and say, do Corey, this. would you write a book with me? Don't and he'll do this. say yes. 
I, I write when I'm anxious. I have seven more books in production right now. Uh, it's been a tough couple of years, but I'm booked out till 2025. Yeah. Don't do this. <laughs> Corey, you take the second one. Uh, and then, I mean, we've, we've got a section in the book on labor unions and the Writers Guild. Uh, I mean, not every union is perfect, but uh, the worst union is better than not having a union, I think. And we can aspire to more than the worst union. Um, I think that the, the reluctance of uh, left parties around the world to engage with and, and full-throatedly support unions has been a, a great disaster for progressive forces. I think we see this playing out in the United Kingdom where the labor union, uh, with labor party rather, has threatened to expel members, uh, uh, members of parliament for, and remove the whip from them if they join picket lines. Uh, is, it just tells you everything you need to know about the shambolic for the state of the uh, uh, British opposition and the, the British labor uh, uh, political movement. Um, and, uh, you know, as someone who uh, grew up uh, with um, two union advocates in Toronto, um, I am a great advocate of unions in Canada and around the world, and I think it's our future. Uh, you know, there are some unions that have not covered themselves in glory uh, the solution to that is making those unions better, not, not abolishing unions. Just like there are some regulations that aren't very good, mm. but the answer to bad regulations is not abolishing regulation altogether. It's perfecting regulation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm all, all for unions as long as they, you know, strive, you know, not to, uh, not to become those scaled golems. You know, it's, it's how do you keep the union focused on the people in the union rather than the institutionalization of, of the union? One last question. In the back there. Hello? Yep. yep. Uh, so do you guys think that the pandemic adequately kind of woke people up to the fact that our employers aren't necessarily on our side? Mm. Well, I work in a university, uh, <laughs> and there's been blood on the walls, right? And I think universities, uh, like creative labor markets, uh, are built on people who care very, very deeply about what they do and will pour themselves into it, and every time they're asked for more, will give more. And that universities, which in Australia, like, the US and I'm going to assume like Canada as well are increasingly neoliberal profit making organizations um, that have a lot of concerns that are not necessarily about improving the state of knowledge for uh, in research and study. I think what we're feeling now is that the, the academics that I work with have seen tens of thousands of jobs just lost universities determined to preserve their endowments rather than protect their staff and keep asking for more and more pounds of flesh. And people finally say, there is not going to be an end to this, but we're going to end it. We're going to draw a line in the sand and not just pour ourselves out indefinitely. And I'm really encouraged by that. Right. And I don't know, Doug, what do you think? Well, so far, the, the change and my students' capacity hmm. um, seems uh, 
this post-COVID student so far is very different mm. than the pre-COVID student, not just in, in certain factors of motivation, but in what seems like cognitive ability. Um, and it's, it's a little shocking because uh, it was already a little scary, but you know, my students, the, their ability to do work, to get assignments done, the, the, their sense of what expectations are on being a student are, are very different now. Um, I, I do feel like COVID did change people's relationship to work. It, it changed what the, the kind of social contract that they're willing to make with their employer. And I think we're still seeing what that is. I think people are realizing that most of the work we do is unnecessary to the feeding and care of people, that working for mortgage actuarial assessment in a cubicle isn't actually doing anything. It's actually undoing something. Mm -hmm. And maybe, I mean, it sounds very optimistic, maybe, only maybe a third or a quarter of the work we do needs to be done. So in, in, I think people are realizing that the reason they've been working is not to get something done, but is in order for the system to be able to justify allowing them to share in the spoils. Mm. And now that we're in on that, something, uh, uh, something will have to change. You know, and we'll see, we'll see what that is, whether it's UBI, which people on both sides are kind of arguing for in an interesting way, or a, a, different, a different way of, of meeting out work. And I'm interested to see that happen before whatever is next. You know, this, 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 I'm, not, I'm not saying this to be depressing, but, but to be real. I, I no longer feel like the things that have been happening in my life are these things that we will get over, like Trump and we'll get over, and the capital thing we'll get over, and COVID we'll get over. It feels more like layers. Um, of, 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 of new normal. And doesn't mean it's bad, but these new layers of new normal will require a different, kind, a different kind of response from us. And will we get it now? Will we get it after bird flu? Will we get it after fascism? Will we get, when will we get that? And the sooner we do and start behaving differently, then the fewer of these new layers um, new layers will come. And I think people are sort of starting to realize that now. So in the, in the book, um, we, we have some long chapters explaining just how Spotify works because it's such a Baroque scam. Uh, and part of the, the ink that we spill is devoted to the way that uh, Spotify playlists work. And one of the things that playlists can do is take uh, a playlist full of um, music that people tune into all the time and slowly replace the artists who are known artists who have a royalty arrangement with Spotify and with label and replace them with work made for hire from anonymous artists who just sort of slide into the playlist and they can just slow, sort of bulk it out and Spotify doesn't have to pay for it. Mm. We relate that to how during the lockdown, suddenly a lot of us realized that our employers were happy to seek out workers somewhere else in the world who could also show up in a Zoom square on a meeting. You didn't have to be close to them. You didn't have to be in their political jurisdiction and entitled to benefits. And mm. if any of you have been into a freshie lately and found that your cashier was on the other side of the equator and earning less than a dollar a day in order to take your order, then you've also experienced this as well. We are definitely in a circumstance in which workers are being pitched against each other and being asked to mm. see who can race to the bottom fastest. 
And they're really the only answer to this is the Writers Guild discovered is solidarity among workers across borders. You know, we, we in Ontario lived through a moment in which uh, after NAFTA, uh, a lot of the protections that the auto industry and the other heavy industries had uh, relied on were eroded as um, uh, factory production shift, shifted to Mexico and low-waged workers. And we saw this bizarre circumstance where workers here saw that they uh, believed that their adversaries were workers there and not the bosses who sent their jobs to someone to, to a place where there were fewer labor protections and a lower minimum wage and, and, and fewer environmental protections. Those workers weren't your adversaries. Those workers were your natural allies because they had the same boss as you. Um, we are in a circumstance in which the workers who we can be pitted against is expanding by orders of magnitude, but also by the, where the workers that we can be in solidarity with are expanding by orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. um, this is a moment that is ours to seize or lose uh, as, as, as creative workers, as workers in every trade. And uh, I think that um, it's a moment that we can't afford to lose. And so I hope that the lesson of the pandemic is not just that your job isn't your life, but also that um, the people that you are in solidarity with are the other people being subjected to the same circumstances as you, and not just people who happen to have the same skin color as you, but who are sending your work somewhere else. Yeah, and this is gonna be part of that great reckoning that Doug is talking about. The next time that you are doom scrolling mindlessly on a technology that has been designed to steal your attention, to, designed to anesthetize you, that these people who made it refuse to allow their own children to use. Next time you're numbing yourself with any kind of substance, including that, the next time you come home from work so fatigued and exhausted from your bullshit job that at least two-third part that is completely unnecessary, we should all be thinking that this is being done for a reason so that we're too tired to think about the conditions for a good life. But we can have a good life if we do it differently. And together. And, and we can announce that uh, the mayoral election in, in Ottawa has not gone on a write-in to Pierre Poliev. So there is that. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for coming. That's good. That was Rebecca Giblin, Cory Doctorow, and me at the Ottawa Writers Festival, October 24th, 2022. You can buy or download their new book, Choke Point Capitalism, anywhere they have books. See you next week. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market